You are listening to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empowers you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. your host and I'm super thrilled to bring you stories, inspiration and strategies to get more meaning in your work and in your life, make more money and lead a movement to change the world. I am a digital communication and brand strategist, business advisor, award-winning author and a speaker. I am on a mission to help professional executives and entrepreneurs to become leading voices in their field by finding what makes them unique and creating compelling messages to the right audience. Are you struggling to find out why your message doesn't get the engagement you expect from your audience and customers whilst your competition seems to do very well? Well, apply for a complimentary assessment of your website to find out. I will personally review your website and show you what is confusing your prospect and the easy step to take to clarify your message. To claim this time-limited offer, go to francinebelay.com slash review, that's F-R-A-N-C-I-N-E-B-E-L-E-Y-I.com slash review. Welcome to the season three of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast. My guests in this series are creating powerful movements that are challenging the status quo, and they are revolutionizing companies, communities, countries, and even continents. Opening this series is Paminda Veer, OBE. She's the former CEO of the Tonu Elumilu Foundation, Africa-leading philanthropic organization, and the most ambitious African entrepreneurship program. So this episode is exceptionally longer than normal episodes, as we talk in the first 30 minutes about what She's been doing with Tony Lumilu Foundation, the program, in the past five years and the amazing path that led her to this opportunity. Now let's dive in. So today I have a wonderful woman on this show. She is Parmender there and she is uh, the uh, former CEO of Tonu M. Lumelu Foundation, which is uh, one of the most ambitious program of entrepreneurship in Africa. Uh, and before that, she has a background in uh, film and TV production. Hello, Parmender. Thank you for being on this show. It's an honor to be on your show, Francine, and thank you so much for reaching out to find me in this universe and inviting <laughs> me to join your amazing show. Oh, thank you. Some of your previous um, recordings, really lovely insights. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So tell me, fill the gap uh, between uh, what I just said and, you know, uh, what you've been doing uh, in the last five years. You were really pioneering one of the biggest entrepreneurship program in Africa. Can you tell, it, tell us a little bit about, about that? Sure. So the last five years was really the last five years from 2015, 2014 to 2019 was really a call to destiny. 
and my, you know, having the courage and, and the imagination to respond to that. At the age of 57, I left London on the 24th of April to join the Tony Ilimulu Foundation, which is based in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, the inspiration was really a meeting uh, uh, with Mr. Ilimulu on the 11th of, Jan uh, 11th of April, 2014, when I knew that he was going to be in London um, where he was giving a talk at the um, Skull World Forum. And I had written to him to offer really my services as an, in an advisory board capacity. I knew that the foundation had a board. And I was inspired by three things that I'd read about the Tony Lumilu Foundation, its mission and vision. One was his economic philosophy of Afri-capitalism. Here was a private sector leader who were saying that it was the African private sector leaders and business, um, business who were going to transform Africa. The economic transformation of Africa lay in the hands of the private sector. Um, secondly, that he wanted to institutionalize luck and to democratize opportunities. Those things really resonated with me, given my own career as an entrepreneur in the media and the creative industries. Um, but I think for me, it was about that here was a foundation that was going, was, was um, pioneering philanthropy, an African foundation, um, pioneering an African form of philanthropy, but, and bringing the kind of business principles, the capital investment principles, um, to supporting entrepreneurs in his case, that their vision, the foundation's vision and mission was to empower entrepreneurs. And the foundation had already been going. It, they set it up in 2010. So when I joined it, they had experimented with many different ways of implementing that pioneering philanthropy. I was in that in that very brief meeting with him and his um, colleagues, his the, you know staff who were also accompanying him. It, you know they offered me. They asked if I would come and help operationalize their vision. And the vision was really huge, um, that they wanted to commit $100 million of um, family wealth um, over the next 10 years to support um, uh, 10,000 entrepreneurs um, across 54 African countries. I thought, wow. And they said, would I bring my knowledge experience um, to helping them to operationalize that. You know, as Mr. Lumulu has often said, is one thing to have an idea. It's another to then put that into action and to build an institution to last, yeah? Mm -hmm. So that was the call to destiny, and I discussed it with my husband and my daughters. And they said, well, you know, well, mommy, you're not doing anything anymore. You said you want to retire. Mm -hmm. I can't see you retiring and maybe, you know, you should go and take this challenge up. And, and Julian and I agreed, and we said we'd work out what that, that would mean in terms of living apart. And that's what I did. So on the 24th of April, I found myself in Lagos, <laughs> in, Ikoi, um, in an office um, with a desk and, and an amazing, you know, young st a team, st you know, which was uh, managed by the previous um, CEO, we were bored, um, imagining on a blank sheet of paper um, what the Tony Lumilu Foundation Entrepreneurship Program would look like. Wow. And I can certainly talk about 
you know, about the program and how we then went about structuring it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that's great. Uh, you know, as you say, so you kind of just, uh, you know, fabric, you know, uh, made your own luck actually, you know, and you said that he said that he want to institute is the institutionalized luck is that what he says yes, <laughs> i love that concept actually uh yeah that that is a great thing so yeah so from then so here you are in lagos now have you you've visited lagos before right so or was it the first I mean, time you know lagos is everyone who's been there lives there i mean reads about it know that it is the most vibrant city on the continent uh-huh. And I visited, I know many cities across the African continent, but um, there's something about the energy, the drive, the can-do attitude of the people, of the 20 million plus people who live in Lagos. Hmm. And I had been attracted to Nigeria um, um, through its um, media and entertainment industry. Hmm. And you know, that Nollywood is the yes. third largest film industry in the yes. world. Yes, And, it's, very, and it's, it's a very young industry. It's about 25 plus years. And, you know, and it wasn't, it hasn't emerged as a result of a lot of government investment. It's entirely through the imagination, the energy and the drive of the creative entrepreneurs in, in Nigeria. You know, so they are leading in the film, in the in music, in fashion, in anything that is creative, Nigeria, was, the Nigerian talent was very vibrant. And I arrived there, I think it was in 2007, um, I was invited to come and give a talk on really how do we bring about, you know, how do you, turn, how do you put in place a structured approach to Nollywood? Um, and what could they learn from what we were doing in, in the UK in terms of the UK film industry? which is where I was based, but also from other countries, particularly India, which had turned it yeah. very unstructured. Um, the film industry in particular, Bollywood, mm. a very structured um, industry, you know, generating revenues, but revenues that were now being um, really appreciated and owned by the creators of that, of that content. Whereas in Nigeria, still a large percentage of the revenues are lost to, to piracy. So anyway, that was my, so I arrived in Lagos in 2007 for the first time. And I was blown away. I was blown away by the energy, the vitality. Just, you know, here was a country, you know, with every conceivable human man-made obstacle <laughs> that was thrown in its path, still people were living yeah. People were, you know, people, people were driven. Yeah. And that, you know, so my intro to Nigeria and to Lagos was the media and, and, and the creative industries. Um, so I was aware of what night, you know, being in Lagos, that it you know, takes three hours to go from, you know, Ikuri from VI to the mainland or from the mainland coming into, um, into Lagos. Um, you know, is geography, it's infrastructure, and it's people. People are the most, you know, they're the most warmest, warm, welcoming people that I have met and I've traveled all over the world. 
Yeah. So actually, yeah, you didn't, uh, you knew a bit of uh, what was, uh, yeah, yeah. What was waiting for you before you got there. So what what would you say that were the key thing that you were able to achieve at the New Lumilu Foundation? Huge amount. I think um, building a made in Africa, by an African, for Africa um, entrepreneurship development program was phenomenal. So in the first nine months from April to the 1st of December, I literally designed the program which emerged as the seven pillars of the TEF entrepreneurship program. And the seven pillars were very simple. Um, You know, the seven pillars are about taking a holistic approach to entrepreneurship development as opposed to a piecemeal ad hoc approach. Mm. So those seven pillars were the first is the the training, the 12-week Um, Enterprise Toolkit, Mm -hmm. designed it so that it was really, you know, created with the knowledge and an understanding of the African reality, the reality of an African entrepreneur Mm. is very, very different to being an entrepreneur, as you know, in the UK or any of the Mm -hmm. social developed countries. Mentoring was the second pillar. Mentoring, um, you know, is not a business mentoring rather than coaching Um, so for me, so that was the second pillar. Mm-hmm. The third pillar is really um, curated um, knowledge, information. There's no shortage of particularly for the millennial age is that they can go to the computer and find the information. But if you can curate the information that's relevant for a startup to an early stage enterprise um, online as part of the entrepreneurship program is indispensable, invaluable, Yeah. Mm. Um, the fourth one was to enable the entrepreneurs to really meet. Um, so we organize meetups across the continent in each of the countries from where the entrepreneurs originated from. Mm. The fifth one was really bringing Africa together, African startups and entrepreneurs in one location. I originally conceived of it as a boot camp where you've been together online for 12 weeks with your mentor doing your 12-week training program um, and and networking with each other online. But now you could come together in one location. And our first boot camp was in in, July 2015. And that then became, has become, you know, an annual event, a gathering, the largest gathering of African entrepreneurs and, and continues. Um, the last one was obviously the, the, the sixth one was the seed capital. So we felt that it was, imp- we said it was important in, in conceptualizing the program that we also provide $5,000 that normally a startup or, a, or an early stage entrepreneur goes to family, fools and friends. And so <laughs> I thought this brilliant idea, yeah. I'd like you to invest in me. So $5,000 that we would be prepared to, it was, it was a proof of concept um, mm-hmm. seed capital investment. Mm-hmm. And finally, um, that the, you know, the program was not a, a linear program, but a cycle um, that once you graduate from the program at the end of 12 months, that you become part of an alumni network. Mm-hmm. With that, we wanted to, we're building Africa's largest network of entrepreneurs across the continent, yeah? Mm. And underlying, underpinning all of that was going to be technology. Uh-huh. Um, technology that would, you know, enable the entrepreneurs to come and do the mentor learning program. 
um, technology that would enable us to connect and communicate with entrepreneurs across the continent in three languages, by the way, yeah. Portuguese, French, and English. Yeah. Um, and technology that would really enable and facilitate entrepreneurs to continue connecting with each other and continue remaining part of the network and through which we could then give them, provide them with value-add services as they began to go from an idea to launching a business or if they were already in business to taking it to the next level. So those were the seven pillars of the Tony Nimuli Foundation Entrepreneurship Program. And your listeners can go to the TEF website and yeah. and get much much more i will put the link in the show notes later yes on the uh, yes totally that is awesome but i'm also curious to know how did you come up, we've come up with those seven pillars what was your methodology to come with those seven pillars well partly i think it was drawing on my own experience as an entrepreneur having run my own production companies over the last two decades um, each film that you make is a new enterprise, um, but underlying that is your production company. So I guess I'd always been an entrepreneur. And, you know, what are the fundamentals that an entrepreneur needs? So I looked at, I really drew on my own experience and extensive research. Mm. I wasn't, we were not the first to launch an entrepreneurship program. Mm-hmm. The majority of people, when they heard whispers that there was a $100 million commitment, I think they thought that Mr. Illuminu would then, you know, simply hand over his $100 million and say, <laughs> I want an entrepreneurship program. You've already got one. Why don't you run, come and run it in Africa? I think parachuting Western-based business models and Western-based um, entrepreneurship development models don't always work. Yeah. For me, as a filmmaker, it's always been important to tell stories from the inside out working with local storytellers, local directors, writers, um, cinematographers, working with local talent, you come with a very different perspective on story to parachuting, you know, outsiders to come in and make films about. So there's a, you know, there's a storytelling which is about or storytelling with. And after having research, done my extensive research around mentoring, around teaching, creating, um, you know, courses for entrepreneurs, because I believe entrepreneurship is teachable and learnable. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, but doing it, I think if I had been doing it, sitting in London, designing this program, I might, you know, it would have been looked very different. Yeah. Living in Lagos, getting around Lagos, meeting entrepreneurs and seeing their daily challenges around infrastructure, you know, Mm. roads, power, I mean, if Nigeria could sort out its power, um, you know, challenges, in, you know, ni- the, there's nothing stopping Nigeria. Yeah, yeah. Um, internet, you, you know, access to internet. Mm. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, the the enabling environment, you know, that we and you and I take for granted mm-hmm. in the West just doesn't exist for early stage startups and and enterprises. So I guess I took all, I was informed by all of that to design something which was really um, based on the local reality. Mm. And the seven pillars, the final thing was that, you know, it's not enough to just say, you know, you can join our program and you'll get 
um, we'll give you a bit of mentoring, or we'll facilitate a bit of networking, or we'll give you, you know, a bit of information, or, you know, we'll provide you with some training and capacity building. I think at the heart of it, um, for me, it was really important that any entrepreneur who applied to the program mm. had to apply with the business idea that was the fire in their belly. There's something that they, they had seen a gap in the market and they knew they had a solution to it. And it was that you know, idea that they were going to live with for the next 12 months and go from an idea to actually launching or starting that business. Mm. Um, otherwise, it's it's an academic. The, the, the yeah. It's not designed as an academic exercise or a certification. You know what? I can now add this as another certificate mm. to my long list of certificates that I've received. Um, I guess all of, you know, and, you know, with each pillar, it just, I, the seven, I was just adding, seeing what would, what's the holistic approach, and that's what emerged. But then that holistic approach, and I'll talk about that in a minute, led, gave, um, has given birth to other spin-offs um, from the program, the biggest one being advocacy, you know, really advocating um, to governments and policymakers, international development agencies, etc., um, why entrepreneurship is important for the development of the country. Yeah, yeah. So um, I just want also to know, how do you measure impact? What were your methodology to measure the impact that your program was having? Well, the impact when you're backing entrepreneurs is, you know, did they survive or didn't they survive? Yeah, so remember this is a private sector-led initiative. Um, for us, he was institutionalizing luck. He is institutionalizing luck and democratizing opportunity. There's no program, they're very program that plays at the bottom of the pyramid. And so for us, it was like, you can apply with just a business idea or you can apply, it was zero to three year old that you've been running your business for from zero for three years. Anything above that we did not consider. Okay. Um, so we really wanted to build, that's why um, we aimed for, we selected 1,000 entrepreneurs from 54 African countries. So it's literally building the entrepreneurial class from the ground up. Um, and that's, you know, that for, for, for the foundation and for the program, that was really, really fundamental. Mm, yeah, no, that's great. Yes. What was, would you say some of the challenge that you personally find very difficult to cope with during your time there? You know, it's really people have often asked me, so what was the challenge? And I would say to them, the challenge, the challenge became managing success. So in the first year, we received 20,000 applications, 20,000 people, entrepreneurs registered on our application portal. Um, in 2019, March 2019, when we closed the portal for the fifth year of the application, it was 216,000 plus, yeah? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the challenge from year one became managing the success story. Mm -hmm. That You know, with each year, we knew we could select three to 5,000 entrepreneurs. Um, and we had built a program infrastructure so the challenge became, how can we get others to support entrepreneurs given 
they had a ready-made program, an in, a, a program structure for the development of entrepreneurs. And in 2016, you know, we began to reach out to governments, to policymakers, to particularly the international development donor agencies who were coming into the continent across the different African countries, um, now adopting entrepreneurship as a development tool. And we said, look, you know, we've already created this. It's a model that works. You know, we've got a proof of concept in the first year. We made mistakes, we've learned from them, and we've tweaked them. Um, second year, and in the third year, we then, you know, appointed, um, we created a partnership um, depart division of the, of, in the foundation. And the job was, you know, the task was to go and find partners who would sponsor additional entrepreneurs. So our commitment to the 1,000 entrepreneurs absolutely remained, but that they would, you know, from the, the 3,000 more that we could select from, that they would sponsor additional entrepreneurs. And that is what we have, you know, the, the foundation has been able to achieve. So that in 2019, the foundation selected 1,000, but we had partners who enabled us to select an additional 2,000 plus. Mm -hmm. So the total was 3,050. Mm -hmm. You can see how we went from 2015 to from 1,000 to 2019 to 3050 mm. you could go through this structured program right yeah yeah this is how you're going to be able to scale would they follow the same program or each partner has a way to model or you know change a bit their program the program so the idea is that we the foundation is bringing is technical um knowledge and technical the technical tas as they call it mm -hmm. technical assistance i.e the structured program and what the partners are bringing is the seed capital, the $5,000. Mm. Um, the entrepreneurs follow the same program. They okay. apply, um, they are selected, and they, are, they go through the same process. The 12 weeks, the mentoring, the meetups, the, they, they attend um, the, the, um, the forum, the Tony Nimlu Foundation Entrepreneurship Forum, and they receive the seed capital and, you know, but the partners themselves can continue to track um, the progress of the, the enterprises that have gone through. Some partners particularly like the ICRC, the International um, Red Committee for Red Cross, mm -hmm. wanted to, in the first year in 2018, sponsor 200 additional entrepreneurs in the post-conflict area in northern Nigeria. Mm. And they have, you know, feet on the ground. And they were able to take the program and do a mix of it as online and offline, yeah? mm -hmm. and, and have a much more of an inbuilt tracking the progress of those entrepreneurs um, as they dispense their $5,000 each capital to each one of them. So, you know, they can tweak it, but the, really the modules, the 12 modules, um, the the mentoring etc. The the is they follow the structured program as it as it is, and also in 2018 what we did was to make available free um, the online the 12 week online training program, um, and so you know so for those who didn't get into the program didn't get selected, they could still um, undergo take those 12 modules 
And maybe, you know, they could apply again next year. They'll certainly be much more informed mm. as a result. So I think that the, the key thing was to build independently thinking um, entrepreneurs. Yeah. To grow, you know, independence of thought and, ma- and, and self-management and self-direction. Entrepreneurs don't need hand-holding. Yeah. They don't need grants. Mm. They don't need, you know, they need guidance. Yeah. And that's the role of a, a business mentor is yeah. to create that guidance. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the free online course, is it accessible on the website also, on Tony and Numelu Foundation websites for anybody to go there and uh, take those calls or is uh, also has some criteria? No, it's absolutely free. So in, in October 2018, we launched TEF Connect. Okay. So until then, we've had about four different tech technology platforms for the application form, for the mental learning, for document management, and for alumni. And in 2018, we built a new platform, which was an integration of all those four. Mm. And it's called TEF Connect. And people can go on TEF Connect. Okay. www.tefconnect.com uh-huh. and they can now it's on the TEF Connect platform that okay. is made available the 12 week program and those in those three languages as well English, French and the uh, uh, is it Portuguese or Spanish mm-hmm. the third language Portuguese Portuguese is it also available in those three languages it is indeed That's great. So, wow, that's fabulous. Wow. I can ask you on and on questions, but you know, now let's get back to our meaningful work and meaningful life, actually. Um, You know, that is fabulous. I love this, uh, you know, what you've been able to achieve in five years, you know, how, you know, can you believe how these, if all kind of partners come on board to you know, just use the foundation that you put there, you know, where Africa will be in another five years. That would be great, really. But you know, the credit, I mean, you know, so I did travel across many of those 54 African countries, often accompanying Mr. Elimelu and also on my own. Um, the key for him was that, you know, it's walking the talk. Um, it's yeah. not evangelizing entrepreneurship, but it's actually doing it and then seeing the results and the impact of it yeah mm-hmm. and he's done that and you know he travels relentlessly engages with you know africa's leaders politicians invites the leaders and politicians to the forum like the last forum we had the president of ghana and the president of kenya who joined us by satellite And the year before, the president of Sierra Leone, um, the, the vice president of Nigeria has spoken at the conference twice. So for him, it was it's really important that, that you know, we know that the private sector can do what it's good at. Mm. But, you know, that you can't do this. You can't do institutionalizing luck and empowering and democratizing opportunity and empowering Africa's entrepreneurs without the participation and collaboration and partnership of the government. Um, So a lot of it is, you know, a lot of it is also about then taking that extraordinary data that the foundation had had amassed by the end of five years, over half a million contacts um, with entrepreneurs and talking to the entrepreneurs to find out what their challenges are and then using that to, you know, to produce sort of, 
I guess, policy papers um, and, and policy direction and guidance um, for governments to begin to implement in their own, in, you know, within their own five-year development plans for their countries. Yeah. Have you produced something for government, um, you know, that the government can use to implement their own, um, you know, uh, yeah. whatever? Okay. It's also on the website. All of this information. So the research reports that we produce leveraging the foundation's data um, are available on the website. Good. Okay. So, wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll go and have a look and I'll put all those resources in the show notes later. <laughs> so, so now actually tell me you had a multifaceted career. We've seen what you've done, uh, you know, with Tanuelu Melu Foundation, with your own uh, media background and your enterprises. How did you move from one passion to the next? <laughs> and become really successful at it? Well, I think that the, the, you know, moving from working in the arts and culture to film and television production, I guess from there to really, you know, the big leap from there was into media financing and then to business consulting. Um, I guess the underlying theme for all of them is change is challenging the status quo. Um, the, you know, all of that work was done in the UK. Um, UK, as you know, you've lived here. Um, we cannot take for granted the fights for equality, for justice, for representation. Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen the impact of Me Too movement. You've seen the impact of you know, Black Lives Matter. I mean, that's the, the modern day versions of it in the yeah. 70s and 80s when I was growing up, um, you know, discrimination was, you know, very much, and you know, one's, you know, a way of life, yeah, mm. and fighting for change. Yeah. And, and was, is, so that, you know, our parents' generation, my generation, you know, we, you know, we've taken on those battles and we've fought and won many aspects of those battles, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, as with, you know, I was drawn to, I was much more drawn by the power of creativity, by the power of art and culture, um, and, you know, the use of, you know, how can we, you know, art, you can't, you know, it was a luxury to be, to be just an artist. I'm a painter, I'm a poet, I'm a writer, I'm a dancer. Mm-hmm. But actually, the moment you are also of an ethnic minority background, there's an automatic another dimension that you're bringing to whatever your creative medium is. Um, I guess from in the arts and culture, it was really the you know the the politics of that. You know, how can we use art and culture as part of the political struggle, as part of bringing about change? Yeah. And I guess when I moved to film and television, it was continuing with that, with that theme of telling stories, hmm. stories that come from the margins, the stories that come from different perspectives, different experiences. But how can we tell those stories and be seen in the mainstream of British television, the mainstream of British film industry? And I guess that is what, you know, those are the, that's the underlying connection in the multifaceted career that I've had. And I guess when I moved to kind of business consulting, it was much more about, you know, now connecting 
who I am in Britain and my contribution to the economic, cultural, political, and social development of this country, to where I came from, which was, in my case, the Indian subcontinent. Mm -hmm. There are many people who've come here from the Caribbean, others from Africa, others from China. But, you know, we don't forget the suitcase full of culture and knowledge that we came with, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in, the, in, in early 2000, I saw India emerging as an, as an economic power. And I thought, wow, it's, you know, you know 1.2 billion people and an economy that was thriving across all sectors, particularly the media and entertainment industry was emerging. And for the UK media and creative industries, I felt India should be a destination, a business destination, a business opportunity. And that's when I made, I became, I guess, from a creative producer to much more looking at the business opportunity for the UK creative industries um, from the Indian market and also across many of the African markets, particularly South Africa um, and Latin America and, and inevitably Asia. And so it's all, I guess it's, and that's, you know, and that to be that bridge between Britain and, and India, because, you know, growing up in Britain, I never lost touch with my, I guess, birthplace and my country of origin. Yeah, no, that's great. So now I totally understand that media wasn't just media for its own sake, but it's yeah. to bridge those actually different aspects of cultural business. And, you know, yeah, that's, that makes total sense. I love that. This is why I asked this question, because sometimes people look at different backgrounds and they don't see the threads. So, but I know that there's always a thread uh, underneath what people do, what seems to be disconnected, actually. So, you know, when I went into when I, you know, my first job was in BBC as a researcher, mm. um, it became, you know, how did I get my first job? I presented a showreel of black filmmaking in Britain um, because the BBC said, you know, that, you know, they were not employing or engaging with black talent. Mm. And, 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 you know, there was an assumption by the BBC executives, in-house executives, that black and Asian um, filmmakers, you know, they were, they were not communities, were not aspiring to work in the media. Mm. And I cut a showreel showing the, you know, amazing works by, uh, you know, black directors and presented it to the board of governors and the senior executive. And they, as a result of that, they did begin to employ more black talent mm. as part of their programs. And I was invited to work as a researcher in the music and arts department. So I guess for me, it was one was really being able to tell our stories. Mm. The other was also, which goes back to institutional, institutionalizing luck, was also about um, changing the institution and their um, connection and their perception and their attitudes and their own um, discriminatory, I guess, procedures for inviting Black and Asian talent inside. So for me, it's never been about just going in there and making films. It was always about how can we change the BBC mm. from the inside out mm. so that it is really uh, an institution um, for all people, whether you're working class, white, or you're Asian, 
African, whatever it is that you've come from, but that, that you can aspire to work inside the BBC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can aspire to work inside, you know, ITV, the commercial channels. I guess in the commercial, when I joined Carlton Television, they called me in to say, you know what, we have, we are broadcasting in London and in the Midlands, 80% of the ethnic minorities live in these two regions. And yet um, we don't have any people from those communities working in the creative side, the production side, or the management side. You'll always find an Indian accountant or a Nigerian accountant. <laughs> so that, you know, green lighting dramas and comedies and entertainment. Um, and, you know, for me, it's never been rocket science how you begin to attract people. Um, you do it by reflecting them on your screen and you do it by, you know, opening up your um, recruitment procedures. Yeah. So, you know, so it's, you, yeah, I don't think, yeah, you know, for me, it's never been, oh, let me just go in there and be a filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. You say it twice, and I need to dig this down a bit. Uh, institutionalizing, look, I can't pronounce that word even. Yeah. Can you break down what institutionalizing luck means, actually, yeah. and how people can, you know, use this concept? Because I love this concept, even if I can't pronounce the, the, the word. <laughs> I love that concept of institutionalizing luck. Uh, can you break that down for us? So I think, you know, across, you know, the decades, institutions, whether it's the BBC, local governments, all of, you know, the corporates, um, they, you know, they want to, and democratizing opportunity, you know, they have various schemes, you know, mentoring for women, you know, we want to recruit more ethnic minorities into the, the police force, et cetera, et cetera. They have initiatives. But those initiatives, you know, go so far and then they fall off, right? And they're very much run by individuals. So the moment that individual leaves that particular institution, a lot of those, that initiative also dies with them. Mm. And for me, you know, fighting racism, fighting discrimination, um, and, you know, um, giving opportunities is about how do you then build that into your, the institutional framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from the top down. So you know that as you go into an institution, it becomes more and more snow peak at the top, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and also it becomes more and more male dominated at the top. Yeah. I guess is for me institutionalizing luck is how if you've got people coming in, you've created um, ways in which you're going to bring people into the institution. Now, how do you begin to make sure that they rise through the ranks in that institution? Mm. And how do you build in those anti-discriminatory procedures and processes so that enables talent to rise to the top? Yeah, so that you begin to see a different kind mix of people, um, diversity of thought, perspective, cultures, um, experiences, right across, you know, I mean, the bottom of the pyramid, mm. um, in the way that we did with it, we've done with the Tony and Emily Foundation Entrepreneurship Program, you know, out of those 1,000 entrepreneurs that you've empowered, you know, 20, 30% will rise to the top and will yeah. continue, right? Another, you know, 20% may, 30, 40% may just, just continue to, um, 
um, you know, break even or stay, stay, stay the steady course, you know, maybe 10, 20 will just realize entrepreneurship is not for them. Mm-hmm. But hopefully they will take that knowledge and, and experience and apply it going back into a corporate job. Um, so for me, institutionalizing luck, if you're democratizing opportunity and you're okay. giving opportunity for people to come through, then find ways you must build into your institution ways of retaining that talent, of growing that talent, of investing in that talent, of valuing that talent, yeah? yeah and I yeah. feel that we don't do enough of that follow-up and follow-through um, on the journey um, of, of, of someone who comes in. You know, so why did the BBC not retain me mm-hmm. after having brought me in? Um, why is, you know, why are there, uh, and, and that's to do within Britain, that, you know, that is revolving doors, yeah? Mm. And but leaving us, I mean, <laughs> so institutionalizing luck in the context of Britain, I think is, is institutionalizing those processes and procedures. Mm. Um, in the context of the entrepreneurship development, it is literally that, you know, everybody would say to you, oh, I've been lucky. I was lucky mm. to get this break. I was lucky to find this amazing mentor um, who saw, you know, potential in, in me and helped me to grow. I think with Mr. Olumalu, he himself has been a product of luck, mm. um, as he says, but obviously also a product of his own tenacity, his own mm-hmm. ordinary um, drive. Mm. and intelligence yeah mm-hmm. um but he know he con- continues to this day um give credit to his mentor mm. and he celebrates his mentor yeah and when you know when he had the money and wanted to invest 100 million dollars of his family wealth for him it was like how can i institutionalize that luck that i got uh-huh. so that is not by luck that i met somebody Yes. That I can provide that mentoring, I can provide that seed capital, I yeah. can provide that training that combined together that will enable um, that entrepreneur to get ahead and then obviously make his or her own luck. Yeah, yeah, got it. Wow, that is even more beautiful than what I thought before. <laughs> so tell me, what actually um, was the job you wanted to do when you were a kid? Was it what you were doing as a, a media producer? What What was the first job you thought you would like to do when you were a kid? I think, you know, the first job, I mean, it's interesting that I trained as a teacher, actually because I grew up with my grandfather. I mean, my grandfather was a teacher. Mm-hmm. He was retired by the time I was four years old in India. I was born in India, mm-hmm. in Punjab, in a rural village. Yeah. My father was a teacher, and I had memories, very fond memories, of um, you know going to school on his bicycle um, as he cycled to school, and you know seeing you know the school that he ran, the school that where he was a teacher, um, all the activities in the school before I was then when sent to another school. So teaching, I guess, was, you know, so I had a role model in two people, my father and my grandfather, mm-hmm. um, teaching. And my first, I remember my career teacher asked me, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a teacher. I want to do this <laughs> training. And that's exactly what I did. I spent four years training as a teacher in geography, 
um, physical education. Um, it was geography and physical education, and 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 you know, and that you know, and I trained and I finished my training, but I never really taught. I mean, apart from doing my teaching practices, mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to travel. Mm-hmm. I knew that you know my you know that I yeah I guess my. I'd watched my father. My father came to England in 1963. We followed him in 1965. By the time I arrived in 65, in two years, he'd bought a house. He was very much rooted in the Indian community in Mm. Southampton. Mm -hmm. And I began to see how he was was the community organizer um, because he could speak English. Mm. Um, so he could, he helped many of the people in the community get their mortgages, you know, did translations for them mm-hmm. and was similarly a, a union rep in his workforce. He worked at the post office. And, you know, so all of this was, I was, I was observing, you know, that, the, that his activism, his community organization mm. was really helping people, was really you know, impacting people's lives. Hmm. And I think that has, that certainly stayed with me. And that when I left, I finished teacher's training and I, you know, and I found myself um, being, I, did I apply? I got, I wrote that there was an organization in the 1980s, late 79, 76, that had been set up by Nassim Khan called MAS. Mm-hmm. Minority Arts Advisory Service, and I remember I was just finishing off my fourth years, my B.Ed. at um, at college, and I wrote to Nasim Khan because I'd heard her on a radio program, mm-hmm. saying I'd love to come and um, work with you and support you know, mm-hmm. support what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I had no clue about arts funding. <laughs> um, and they responded to my surprise, and in fact, I invited me to come and. Um, join them on their radio show, which I did. And that's, you know, so for me, the arts became a way of mm. realizing my passion for change, mm. um, passion for community organization. In this case, the community was the arts community. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's uh, super, actually. Wow. So now, when did you realize actually who you are and what you are meant to do in life? I know that you just talked about, you know, the fact that you moved to, you know, wanting to be a teacher, but seeing your dad and finally, you know, just having the thread get to, to your first job. But, you know, I mean really who you are and really being clear about what you are meant to do in this life. When did you have that realization? Can you remember that? I I think it was when I joined the Tony Lumley Foundation. Really? Wow. Tell me about that. What kind of realization it was? (laughs) You know, when I I remember pausing, oh my God, as I was, we were developing the, the seven pillars of the program ready to announce it to the world on the 1st of December, 2014. Mm. I, I, as I was doing it, I, and I was being stretched as if I was a piece of elastic, my bandwidth <laughs> was being stretched. I was alone. I've left my family and my, you know, all the kind of networks here. But I remember thinking, wow, so this is what I was destined to do. 
that everything I had done before, whether it was in the arts and culture and film and television, mm. financing, all the skills and knowledge that I had been gathering mm. were preparing me for this moment. For such a time as this. Yeah. <laughs> so the foundation and the work in the foundation, the structuring of the program, the empowering of thousands of entrepreneurs, and seeing the impact on their lives um, and how they're transforming themselves, their families, their communities, is, is I mean, it's, it, ha, you, know, it, you know, so there were a thousand moments of joy mm-hmm. over those years. So, is, you know, by the time I finished, we had empowered 4,470 in just the four years, and in the fifth year, at the end of this year, it will be nearly 7,000 plus entrepreneurs. Hmm. But, and then you meet those entrepreneurs and you see, you know, how they're creating 10 jobs, 15 jobs, 20 jobs, how they're generating revenues, how they're able to attract others to now invest in them, right? Because they have been, they have received that, you know, that, um, then, yeah, the institutionalizing of luck and 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 an opportunity. They'd seized the opportunity and made something and with it, yeah? yeah. And even amongst those who failed, you know, those who said, you know, Pamina, we're going to close our business down. I, and I would say, why? Hmm. Because the market has changed. Because what I thought I was going to be able to generate revenues from I know is no longer possible. And I would really praise them. And I would say, you know, for me, it's a, you know, fantastic. You tried it um, and the market has, has shifted and you've been smart enough to shift with it. But your fire to be an entrepreneur will never die. Yeah. So actually, what you say is so true, actually, and I recognize that based on what you just say. So this opportunity actually gave you this opportunity to bring education um, to, you know, those who want to become entrepreneurs so that you can also impact that social change through economic empowerment. So that's fabulous. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think you can't, you know, for me, it's really important not to overburden the entrepreneurs for doing what, you know, the governments need to be doing. You know, they can't alleviate poverty. They can't overnight eradicate malaria, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah? But they can do small things mm-hmm. which lead to really big impact, social impact and economic impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's cool. So um, so when you look back, actually, um, so um, at what actually you have done in life, what actually did you struggle the most throughout your life? I was thinking, reflecting on that, you know, I mean, we talked about, you know, coming to Britain and experiencing racism and dealing with that. Mm. I guess also the transitioning because my father had five children and he educated all five of us. Yeah. And he said he had four daughters and one son. Mm-hmm. One of the things I always remember, his worry was always, you know, could he ever afford the diaries for girls? Mm. And he said, I'm edu- you know, your education is your diary. Mm. Right? I'm not going to be able, to, I will not have the capital to invest, mm. but I need to educate you. Mm. So I think, um, you know, and with that education, I was able to move out of my class, you know, for working class mm-hmm. Indian girls to be yeah. educated, 
mm. um, to then acquire middle class. So I would say all four of my sister, all four of us, mm. have a middle class lifestyle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so moving, you know, the education is what enabled us to move from our working class um, origins to middle class, to middle class, and know that our children, you know, who've been educated, you know, will will never know the working class mm. um, experience, my my working class, mm -hmm. rural experience in India, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think the thing that I continue to struggle with every day is the injustices mm. in the world, yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of that I've done, channeled in terms of making films about those injustices, I guess, if you look at the body of film over the 20, 30 plus films that I've produced um, um, the injustices I guess that you know is there you know you you know across the African continent um, perpetrated by you know from political leaders um, to you know I mean like you know right it, and it, it, it's 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 just unfair it's not there's no, no reason why any African country, and any African um, young old should be in the position that they are. Yeah. Mm. Um, if the resources were used, the you know Africa is endowed both in terms of human capital and 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 natural resources. I mean, like there isn't a single mineral that you need anywhere in the world that you can't find in Africa. Sixty yeah? percent mm. of the arable land is in Africa. Every conceivable mineral that's from gold to diamonds to whatever comes out of Africa. Um, and you, you know, so the injustices that I see and saw across the continent and Mr. Illumilu's attempt to meet, mitigate some of those injustices mm -hmm. in empowering these extraordinary entrepreneurs, um, that I guess I continue, but I think. It's not just across the African continent. You go, you know, you, when I go to India, you, you, yes, 300 million people have been lifted out of poverty, mm. but there's still, you know, millions more that are still in poverty uh, in, 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 on the Indian continent. Okay. The injustices where 1% of a population owns 90% of the wealth of that country is, is, is unacceptable, yeah? Mm -hmm. Where the value, the per, you know, the value of human life is 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 meaningless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that's uh, yeah, some injustice. You know, that's also one of my fights. The you know, mm -hmm. fighting injustice uh, in all the forms. Um, so um, yeah, so keep carrying. Uh, you know, campaigning in you know whichever field is ours. You know, um, so. Um, you know, sometimes we are also conditioned since our childhood to please others. And we keep either carrying, doing, you know, what we have been taught or rebelled against that. So which spectrum are you in? And, you know, who are you trying to please so much that you lost yourself? That's what, you know, mm -hmm. I, I like to get under now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's very interesting that, you know, that I think, from until in my 20s, I guess I was trying to please my 
parents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're born, you know, as an Indian, you have a sense of duty. Yeah, you know? as an African too. <laughs> exactly, that's why I put it so well in Nigeria and across the continent. I understand your value system. So family and duty is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, you know, I remember my parents coming to me when I was 18 or 19 and said, we're arranging your marriage. <laughs> and I was duty bound to accept that arranged marriage um, to a person I'd never met. Yeah. But a few years later, I mean, that marriage collapsed. Um, but it, I was duty bound. I had to please my parents, my grandparents, my extended family. So I wasn't wasn't a marriage for me. It was a marriage of families. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think duty. I think so. Parents, I guess, yeah. Mm. Um, but I also, you know, but then as I grew up in Britain, I also realized the enormous sacrifice that they had made. They had come here in their thirties, um, you know, my and they had worked very hard. You know, both my mother and father worked very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, to put food on the table mm. and that failure for me was not an option that yeah. I had to succeed mm. that I had to make something better I mean you know the returns on investment I had to show the returns on investment <laughs> for the sacrifice mm-hmm. um, so I guess you know I'm but I wouldn't wouldn't say that I was trying to please them so much mm. that I lost myself because I was able to then, when I did um, take control of my life, I, I graduated as a teacher and realized, you know what, I've got skills, I've got a qualification. I actually don't need to be married. This is not a marriage that I wanted, but it was something I did because I felt duty-bound to do it. Mm-hmm. But now that I have self-confidence, I can release myself and release this other person mm-hmm. of that a relationship that we know is not for for us. Um, and I, you know, so I, yeah, so I was able to do that. And I was able to find myself um, and my confidence. Um, but you, yeah, and to be able to go on to do the things that, that I've done you know, in, in professionally as well as personally. Yeah. So, and when you look back at your childhood as a general, how would you say that it has prepared you to who you are today? I think growing up, being born in a rural Punjab, no electricity, no running water, um, walking to school, um, one parent who was working, a mother who had been married, um, at a very young age, my mother was married. I think she was sixteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, my battery was running low. Um, you know, watching, and you know, growing up in an extended family, where anybody and everybody could discipline me. Literally, this thing that you're raised by a village. I of course. <laughs> I couldn't step out and do anything bad knowing that my parents would know about it before I got home. <laughs> um, um, you know, just, you know, I mean, all, you know, I mean, like, yeah, all, all that, and, you know, in the summer, the harvest seasons, or watching my mother and my aunts get up very early in the morning, you know, to milk the cows, to feed, to cut the, the grass, to feed the cows. Um, 
all of those things, all of those things really prepared me for who I am. Mm. My working class background, I guess, my, you know, yeah, my extended family. It, I think the first 10 years is what shaped and formed me so that mm. by the time, by the time I came to England, I knew who I was, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, there were many, yeah, I mean, like, I remember... You know, we didn't have a fridge because my parents couldn't afford a fridge. Mm. And my next door neighbors who, you know, they had um, a couple of their family members had gone to Bahrain and they were sending money and they had a fridge. And I remember going to her and she gave me an ice lolly and I came home and I said to mom, can we buy a fridge and can we have ice lolly? My mother looked at me like, Am I, are you stupid? Can't you see? <laughs> and said, you know what, here, if you put water in, in this bowl, and leave it overnight, <laughs> it will have ice. You'll have ice in the morning. That's exactly what I did. And, and lo and behold, there was ice in the bowl in the morning. And that was my first experience of making ice. And then the following day, I put mixed it with milk. And another time, I put sugar in it. You know, so what was, you know, so you could suck ice in the morning because it got that cold in the winter. And things like that. But, you know, but those were the base, you know, I didn't have dolls, right? I mean, this girl would next door would have these amazing dolls that they would be bought for her. Mm. Whereas, you know, me, we would be making them out of rags. <laughs> my judge, would, my aunt would say, but, you know, this is a nicer doll than her, the other person's doll, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest is, particularly when I arrived in, in, in Africa and, and developing the program and discovered that, that like 20, 30% of the applications were coming from rural, mm. um, in, from agriculture, yeah, um, from agri-entrepreneurs. Yes. And it really gave me a, a, a real connectivity with having grown up mm. in rural Punjab and seeing how my uncles and, you know, we'd gone from planting corn to seeing if we could be, they could be doing fish farming to, you know, you know, to potatoes one year, to onions, whatever. Um, but, you know, that how, and but staying close to the land, but also seeing how hard it is to stay close to the land and, and stay committed to farming, yeah? just the struggles of farmers. Um, and that I love, you know, I love the fact that a lot of the young African entrepreneurs were seeing agriculture as a business opportunity. Yeah. Did yeah. you get to see also some of the farms there? I did. Oh. So, so one of our entrepreneurs was a cassava farmer, another one grew planting. Mm. Another one was, um, but, you know, a snail farmer, poultry farmers. So uh, I did very much so and visited, um, you know, whenever we traveled, we would meet the entrepreneurs either we bring them together and or um, visit some of their businesses. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so what would be, you say, would you say is one of the toughest moments actually that you had in life, but actually ended up to be a blessing in this guy? Can you remember such a thing? I think there were really two moments. I guess they're both, well, I don't know. Maybe it was the last one. So, you know, in my life, I've been made redundant twice. Um, one was the GLC. I worked at the GLC from 1982 to 1986. The GLC was the Greater London Council, mm-hmm. uh, which is now the GLA. 
Okay. I was um, in in 1986. It was abolished, so you know, and I took redundancy because I guess I had was done with working in local government. <laughs> it was fantastic, but I didn't want to go on whatever the new structure was. Mm. Um, but it was tough that transition from going from one day being like you know the king of the castle to nothing to being having an identity where one was funding artists, um, black and Asian artists, ethnic minority artists in the greater London area. Mm. I think the next, the biggest one, I guess, was when in 2004, March 2004, um, being made redundant now by Carlton Television, mm. merged with Granada to form the new ITV. And I felt that I had done, there was so much that one had done around, you know, cultural diversity as well as um, producing programs, um, suddenly it was gone. Mm. And But in, you know, now that I look back on it, I'm really glad that, you know, that I was made redundant in, in March 2004 mm. because I, I had lost myself. I had, you know, mm. I thought that I was a filmmaker and not a cultural, not a diversity um, not a diversity person, not a diversity officer. I had gone into Carlton to give them a diversity strategy. For me, it wasn't rocket science. But I noticed as the campaign became more and more successful from 2000, that people forgot that I was actually a film producer. I was a producer. Mm-hmm. And how quickly people put you in a new box. Yeah, diversity for me Mm. wasn't a a qualification. It's not something you go and train. Mm. It wasn't. I mean, there's not. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't what I had only done that in order to really bring about the change in in Carlton Television. Um, But I'm glad now. But I was now without a job, without a title. Yeah. Um, without the framework, the infrastructure to support me. And I had to reinvent myself, and it was, you know, what I I want to I want to I want to go back to making films, being mm. remembered um, for my film production skills, not just my diversity, and and reinvented myself and joined um, Ingenious Media Investment Company, and I had presented an idea to the chairman and the founder of that company to say. I wanted to set up a film fund mm. or um, a world cinema fund where, you know, from, uh, you know, for working with um, talent in the emerging markets and also, um, you know, bringing high net worths or investors from those communities to invest in content. Um, you know, and I spent two years learning all about structured financing. I would never have learned that played as a in the diversity role. I would never have experienced setting up my own business consulting company in the media and creative industries. And I certainly would not have ended up at the Tony Foundation running Africa's largest entrepreneurship program. Yeah. <laughs> it was good that I was made redundant and I yeah. leave the diversity tag behind. It is so powerful because um, that's why I always kind of ask that. But again, at the moment when you are made redundant, you can't, 
you can't see what is in front of you, right? <laughs> so yeah. you just you just mourn and you really grieve, and then you just know that the next thing you know for sure is that you don't have the paycheck. But actually, what is before you is always greater than what you just lost. So that's what I really love asking this question, actually. So, um, yeah, tell me, what was your decisive moment also when you saw that things, you know, turned out for the better in your life? Which moment was that? I guess, you know, in, in October 2013, after having run my own consulting company, for five years, um, I then made a decision, which was I was going to stop working. I was 57 years old and tired. Um, I had just turned 57 in October. Mm. And, you know, my daughters, two extraordinary daughters, Mala and Anu, were grown. One had graduated. The other one was, you know, on her way to graduating from universities. And I had worked all my life, you know, as a working class kid. I started working when I was 15, 16, doing Saturday jobs. And it was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to stop. And I said to people, I'm not going to be, I'm going to stop working. And it was that six-month space that I created into which I guess um, walked the opportunity of working with the Tony Lumley Foundation. Mm. And I think that was a real turning point in my life, um, I think, I mean, it, you know, it's had the most profound impact on my life from where I've come from, rural Punjab, to where I was, in, you know, over the, you know, where I, in, where I was over the last five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's super. So what would you say is your superpower then? Wow, that's <laughs> resilience is big. Resilience, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, resilience. Mm. Um, leaving England, leaving India when I was 10, not speaking a word of English and learning here. Um, res- ability to reinvent. Mm. Um, you know, so yes, in, in you, you say it's a multifaceted career. Mm. It, you know, it is the ability to, yeah, to to reinvent yourself, yeah? I think opening doors and creating opportunities for, you know, creating my own jobs. I think there's only one job that I've ever actually officially applied for, which was the Greater London, the GLC job mm. as the Ethnic Arts Officer in 1982. I've never applied for a job, but I've I've imagined or visualized myself doing something. Like I imagine and visualize myself running a film fund and ended up creating that as a job for myself at, at Ingenious Media. Um, I'd imagined um, my, you know, doing what I did for Carlton Television. I had gone in there, you know, that they had a problem and I had a solution. Um, but it wasn't a job that I'd applied for. It was a coffee which led to um, the CEO asking me if I would come in and help them um, with their diversity strategy. Um, I think it's creating jobs. I didn't apply for a job 
as the CEO of the Tony Lindley Foundation or as the director of entrepreneurship. But I was, you know, it's hard work. You know, they, you know, preparation meets opportunity. So I had yeah. done the preparation. And I was open to, you know, where my destiny was leading me to. Mm-hmm. You know, I could have said, thank you, Mr. Olimuli, but no, I can't imagine living in the boss. Um, and instead I said, yes. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, that you do have the power to imagine what you'd like to be and where you'd like to be and what you'd like to do. And you can, I think you can create the roadmap for, um, for achieving that. Yeah, so that leads us beautifully to money. So I like to understand often, how do you manage to do both what you love and get paid well for it? Sometimes you really, really love what you do, but get cricket. And then sometimes you get paid very, very, very well, but don't like it. But how do you finally manage to do both what you love and get paid well for it? You know, that's the amazing, the question, I mean, I hear a lot of people grapple with that. They're actually in the job that they don't like. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the bankers and the people in the financial service, yep. it's what, you know, keeps them is the fact that they have a fat paycheck at the end of it. But they are so fundamentally unhappy, you know? mm. And I could, I couldn't, I, you know, and I then look at myself and think, my gosh, family, you're being so, so blessed. <laughs> from day one, you have been paid for what you love doing. Oh my gosh, you are the one percent, oh, zero, 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 one percent. I, I am, I am, and I, and you know, and so I've never done a day's job where I have not loved what I'm doing. In yeah. Um, but the only jobs that I hated was when I was working, in, you know, as a student, you're supporting yourself. And I worked at the, in a tobacco factory. <laughs> I worked in a, a Coca-Cola factory. Mm. I worked in the post office. I mean, I absolutely hated those jobs. <laughs> but when I look back on it, what I learned from the people that I encountered at a very young age was just so, so valuable. Mm. Um but so I've never done, I've always, but I, you know, but with my, with the, the, the sector that I've chosen to work, media and the creative industries, I mean, the most securest job that I've had is, and the lot is with the Tony Lumley Foundation, where I was getting paid for, I mean, for what, again, you know, what I love doing. Hmm. But in, as a create, working in the media, the only downside was always like, you know, it, it was where's the next paycheck coming from? Mm-hmm. Right? So you're generating your own, you're generating money to support yourself. Um, but somehow we managed to get through it and have two amazing, raise two amazing children, give them the most amazing education and, and love. Mm. And so, yeah, so... So I've never been, I've never, I've ne- the only thing I've done is to take too many risks, I think, that I didn't get, I didn't go into a job because I wanted a job for life. I went in to do a job, whether it was in the BBC or Carlton Television, was because I wanted to bring about change. 
Yeah, yeah. So now we talk about the last part of our conversation, which is building a movement. Mm -hmm. So which movement are you building? I think the biggest movement that I, and I want to continue that is yeah. the empowerment of um, African entrepreneurs across the continent. Yeah, and I will continue to do that. Yes, I've stepped off the, 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 my, the accelerator, is that it? Um, the accelerator of the day-to-day -day running of the foundation. But my love, my, com my um, commitment and my passion for entrepreneurship and in specifically African entrepreneurs is will be with me now to the day I die. Oh, wow. Be, <laughs> that is a huge commitment. It is to support that movement, and it is a movement. Certainly with the foundation, I remember we used to talk about unleashing a movement <laughs> across the continent. With yes. He certainly has done that, and others have now... It is a movement. I mean, in 2015, nobody was talking about African entrepreneurs and African entrepreneurship. Now, from the president down, they are talking about, you know, um, supporting, empowering, building, creating African entrepreneurs. Yeah. So that, I mean, and the impact of it has to be, we have, you know, Africa, everybody must be invested in supporting and building um, African enterprises, because the, the African entrepreneurial class has been so decimated. They've been turned into traders or job seekers. Yes. Rather than innovators, yeah? For me, a snail farmer is as innovative as someone who's creating an app that allows a farmer to be able to sell their um, their products and services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, do you have a new project? What's up and coming for yourself on your side? Well, the new project right now, and you know, I'm at home in London and I'm um, remodeling our two back rooms to turn it into a room of my own where I can read, where I can write, um, because I also want to write a lot around, um, you know, how entrepreneurs in Africa are transforming, the economic transformation of Africa, are leading and driving the economic transformation of Africa. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly want to take the knowledge, the gift that I, this powerful gift that I was given mm -hmm. over the last five years of creating and running uh, the, the program in, in the foundation. And I want to take it to others who was, you know, I, to share that knowledge with other organizations who are also um, supporting entrepreneurs and, and entrepreneurship. Yeah. Either in advisory, in, in, in again, advisory roles. I think I want to write, you know, you've talked about my multifaceted career. Mm -hmm. I want to write about, you know, the work I did in the Greater London Council in the 80s, transformation of artists than it was, Black and Asian artists, funding them, thinking about, you know, policy changes around representation of Black and Asian artists in main mainstream art um, and, and festivals and programs that I organized. I want to write about storytelling and, and, and use the, the experiences of making this, these extraordinary films that I produced across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. 
And I think, you know, most importantly, I want to write about, you know, my certainly five years of the insights that I've got as a result of living and working in the African continent and really help to shift the narrative and the perceptions that people outside have of Africa. African young people, Africa is a continent of young people, 19 I don't know, 75 plus percent of the population is under 19. What they want is not pity, what they are not, they are not victims. What they require is investment. And for us to, you know, for the outside world to stop perceiving of Africa of the 80s and 60s and, and 50s, right? is to really shine a light on the African innovators. Wow. Cool. So how do you want to be remembered for? <laughs> what do I want to be remembered for? I guess I want to be remembered, you know, is Gandhi's um, statement, his quote, you know, be the change you want to be. Um, I want to be remembered for being a change agent. Yeah, cool. So now I'm going to ask you a very quick question and very quick answer. What is, what did you learn from all your experiences that you most want to transmit to others? Wow. (laughs) What did I learn from all my experiences? Yes. That you want to transmit to others. Imagination, Mm -hmm. you know, really, you know, combine the head and the heart. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, wow, this is a deep question. <laughs> a deep question is. for a quick answer. I know yeah, I'm unfair. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. the biggest one is to find your passion and purpose, uh huh, and yeah. then follow it. Yeah, yeah. And stay with it. Yeah, um, you're lucky if you can find it when you're very young. I mean, one of the things that I love, I know that I modeled passion and purpose I, as in my own professional career, as a professional and as a mother. And I see my daughters um, pursuing, finding and pursuing their passions and purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that's most satisfying. Yeah. I think when I meet people and, and I, and I particularly, you know, those who don't work in the media and the creative industries, and I listen to them, I'm very intrigued about what does an investment banker do? What does a banker do? You know, I'm interested. What does software developers do? And then they look at me and I say, and I work in the film industry, and they, their eyes <laughs> light up. And they then, it's an opportunity for them to tell me their own passion that they buried a long time ago. Actually, I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to make films. But duty said that I had to be a doctor and a accountant or that. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And so it's it's very sad because I don't think they ever then... They they forget where they buried that passion and that that talent. Um, So passion and purpose. Yeah. Okay. Always stay with, alive and with your passion and purpose. Okay. So what is one object you'll take with you on a desert island and why? 
book oh, only one object oh any, any one book or one one what would one, I one one anything but just one thing that you can take with you <laughs> i would take a book i would uh-huh. take either you know there was a i remember in 2008 i started reading all the religious mm. books so i read the granth sahib i read the bible i read the quran so which I, one would you take with you this time I guess I would take the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> Good. Because it combines the learnings and teachings of everything. I mean, so the thing that I found in all of those was the common, you know, how much they had in common. Yeah, yeah. So as, as teaching. Yeah, so that's good. What did you regret having or not having done earlier in your life? Well, that's very easy. I wish <laughs> You know, there's a part of me that feels that I'm not my, you know, and I feel inadequate or that I feel that is that I didn't go to university. I did teacher's training and, you know, both of my daughters and my husband, in fact, teaches at a university. Um, and so that's one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't, I didn't go to university My second is that I didn't pause in between these transitions from film, from arts and culture to film and television. That I did, well, I'm not reg- yeah, that I didn't actually go and study any of this. I didn't study arts administration. I didn't do a degree in art history or anything. That I didn't study filmmaking. That I didn't study, I didn't do an MBA. I was about to try, I was thinking of doing an MBA when I created a job for myself at Ingenious Media. Mm. And I began, and that was a two-year MBA. And so everything I've done, I've learned on the job. Mm. I, my regret is that I wish I had underpinned that with some theoretical knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Wow, cool. That's a lot of business, uh, you know, successful business people like Richard Branson and all those things. They haven't put any single foot in the university either. So, <laughs> you know, you don't have to get to university. Actually, perhaps university is not the fastest way to get to what you want to do uh, in life. <laughs> so, but that is for another conversation. So, finally, what is your definition of meaningful work and meaningful life? I think meaningful work and meaningful life. Wow. Um, but I'm, you know, I mean, yes, is you know, but the definition is that it's hard. It's hard work. Mm. You have a meaningful life and meaningful work, yeah? You have to work at both, both, both of them. And there are times when meaningful life becomes more dominant, yeah, whether it's, and, and, and you know, and, 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 and there are others where, you know, constantly striving for a meaningful work where you are impacting, where you are, you know, making the changes, where you are deriving satisfaction. I mean, there's nothing more satisfying than to think of an idea as, as was pitched to me for a, a film, a reggae musical set in London, and then staying with it from the, you know, the, the ups and downs, the long development from the idea to seeing it on the screen, literally five years to the date, yeah? But every day of those five years is a, is a memory 
of the good moments and the bad moments of when you are going to almost give it up. Um, so I think for me, the definition is it's hard work, it's resilience, it's commitment, it's, 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 um, it's staying with that, that passion um, that you're going to be able to, to do both. I think, um, you know, I like to, I think it was, you know, if somebody said, how do you want to be remembered? I, you know, I don't want to be, I mean, yes, one can remember for all the amazing businesses, all the things that one has done in one's life, but actually it's the quality of the children, those of us who have children or the people that you've impacted, yeah? Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, if you look at, when I look at my two children and, and, I, and I see them, and I see them in the world, I know that the values that, that they have, I'm proud of the, I'm proud of the values um, that they uphold in their own lives. Um, I think that for me is also a definition of meaningful life. Yeah, yeah. so meaningful work. I continue to go back to the work to meeting extraordinary people across the African continent, doing extraordinary, um, you know, things that nobody, you know, people outside just don't hear about or don't know about. Um, and and doing it day in, day out. Um, I think that's, those are the two, yeah. Yeah, that's fabulous. So any parting piece of guidance that you have for anybody who is listening that you want to pass on, you know, to how to finally live a meaningful life? Wow. Um, I think things that I, you know, might have, I think build very strong networks that we're not islands, that we don't do things alone, yeah? Mm. Um, set, you know, we always say to entrepreneurs, have a business plan. I think everybody should have a roadmap, mm -hmm. a life roadmap. Be, create, you know, your own roadmaps, yeah? I think, um, you know, don't wait for opportunities. Create your own opportunities. Yeah. Um, whether they're employment opportunities, business opportunities. Um, I think really value relationships, mm -hmm. um, professional, personal, business relationships, and build relationships mm. um, because it is relationships that are going to sustain you. Um, and I get, you know, be honest with yourself. Don't ignore that inner voice because the inner voice is telling you the truth. Hmm. Listen to the inner voice and act on the inner voice, and not what you know what the, you think the outside world is um, is is you know telling you. Um, and you know, maintain integrity. Do everything that you do with integrity. And there's no shortcuts in life. Everything is will take its course. And take risks in the way that I've done all, in all my life. Um, and the risk is to grow, um, to experience, and to, to yeah, and to meet new challenges. 
That's fabulous. Yes, that is awesome. My gosh. So, yeah. So do, can you share some resources that listeners should absolutely know about how to do more meaningful work and live a meaningful life? Something perhaps that have helped you in the past, um, you know, that you want to share. But, you know, I'm an, you know, if you go to my website, um, so one of the things I uh, is really about sharing and inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I focused on and the website is uh, stories of entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurship stories. Um, the website is called Entrepreneur Stories? No, no, no. My website oh, okay. is www.parmindavia.com. Okay, yeah. Mm hmm. So my, you know, there are five, six things that I'm saying I want to share, which will inspire, which will guide. One is all around entrepreneurship. Okay. I'm particularly focused on African entrepreneurs and stories. Um, because it is people's stories that stay with you. Is what, you know, that's what they make you feel rather than, you know, what you... The other is really some extraordinary books. I read a lot. And I would advise people to to read and 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 you know, literally from classics to bi- biographies to novels, and I'm and I write reviews of books, films. Obviously, for me as a film avid filmmaker, I, in order to be a filmmaker, I watch. You have to have an appreciation and love for the craft, which means. You have to watch films. So I watch hundreds of films because I'm also a member of BAFTA. Mm. We watch hundreds of films a year in order for us to be able to vote at the end of it. Wow. Hundreds of films a year. My gosh. <laughs> That's more than two films per day or per week. <laughs> literally hundreds of yeah? And it's, you're watching films and, and documentaries as well. as. So I would say really whatever you're doing, whatever... You know, there are someone who's done it before and you'll be inspired by someone else's story yeah. in film. And, you know, and, and the other areas, arts and culture, you know, I mean, I was recently when, you know, you go to art exhibitions and you see, and, and it's the story of how the artists got to where they've got to. Mm. Um, there's an artist right now, Denzel Forrester, whose work is... It, it, in mainstream gallery in um, in London, but you know the guy was literally you know started painting in the eighties, um, going to dance halls mm. at night and painting, mm-hmm. and today his work is selling for half a million pounds. Yeah. But in all that time, it's taken him until now, and he's in his sixties. But he's lived with you know virtually no money. Yeah, but continued painting, and now. He's been so-called discovered. Mm. And I said to my daughter, you know, one thing I would advise young people, my my young self, because I met him in the 1980s, yeah. to start, I should have started buying his art mm. to support him as an artist, yeah? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we should support, we should buy and support young people's creativity now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. How can people reach you and learn more about you and your work? All my details, you know, they can certainly reach me. My, um, I'm on LinkedIn mm-hmm. and they can, I try and do two posts uh, a week. On, on your website. And my website, yeah. Mm-hmm. And people can find me, absolutely. 
And if they want to know more about the foundation and the yeah. African entrepreneurs who are listening into the program, yeah. just go to the Tony Lumuli Foundation website, www.tonylumulifoundation.org. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there you'll find information about the next program cycle. And you can read a lot of the alumni stories. It's rich um, in information and content. It was a fascinating, fascinating, you know, uh, um, time to talk to you and uh, share all your wisdom and, you know, and I'm sure this is not the last interview. So we'll come back for a follow-up interview. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to meet you. And uh, wow, I, I, I can stay here for the whole day, but <laughs> I'll just have to call it for now. And, uh, you know, and I'll see you again next time. So what was your key takeaway from this episode? What are you committed to do today to find more meaning in your work and live a more meaningful life? If you'd like to clarify your goals and achieve them faster, there are three ways to do that. One, get my book, Personal Branding in the Digital Age, how to become a known expert, thrive and make a difference in the connected world. Available on Amazon, iTunes, Audible as ebook, audiobook, paperbook. Second is to work one-on-one -on -one with me to clarify your objectives and achieve them faster. For that, you need to book a call at francinebelly.com slash call that f-r-a-n-c-i-n-e-b-e-l-e-y-i.com slash call and there is a third way which is a time limited offer if you are struggling to find why your message doesn't get the engagement you expect from your audience or your customers whilst your competition seems to do very well apply for a complimentary assessment of your website. I will personally review that and show you what is confusing your prospect and the easy steps you take you can take to clarify your message. This is a time limited offer. Go to francinebelly.com slash review that's F-R-A-N-C-I-N-E B-E-L-E-Y-I.com slash review to submit your website. So the show notes of this episode of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life are available on my webpage, francinebelly.com slash podcast with all the references and resources shared on the show. Whilst you are there, Leave a message in the comment section to let me know about your key takeaway from this episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to show your love and support, subscribe to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all the app where you are listening to this podcast and leave me a five-star review. It will take you a minute, but this will mean a lot to me and help me also spread this message for many people. Thank you for listening to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast. They show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I will see you next week for another brand new epic episode of this season three. Until then, dream, act and make an impact. Lots of love.